The second reading comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. Listen for the living word of God as you attend to hearing the written word of God. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have ever been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. That Christian movement got off to such an incredible start. Their champion, Jesus, rose from the dead. And many saw, touched, and even talked with him. Then he ascended to heaven before their very eyes. And after several days of almost nonstop praying, they heard the sounds of a rushing mighty wind filling the place where they were and fire descending into the room and resting upon their heads. 
And they then, in response, pouring out praises of God in multilingual style, languages they'd never learned. They went out and told others about it, and that very day thousands joined them, and days subsequent, thousands and thousands more. Some were others who opposed them, and one of them, in fact, was their chief opponent, truly a persecutor with blood on his fangs and teeth and, and, and fingers. But he had a, what we call now a Damascus Road experience, a vision. And he too was converted and became a chief evangelist, a missionary. But conflicts arose. As with so many organizations, their need to define themselves led to questions of initiation. On what basis do we allow outsiders to join us? The initial requirement was quite simple, as spoken by Simon Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and your sins may be forgiven. Then again, while this audience to whom he was speaking was diverse in language and geography, they all were Jewish, just about at least. And all of us were basically followers of the teachings of Moses and the prophets. Most all of the males among them had been circumcised, as was the tradition on the eighth day of a Jewish little boy. But when Peter was invited to travel up the coast from where he was at the time in Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv, a day's journey to the city of Caesarea, by name, you know it wasn't a Jewish town, it was a Roman town named after Caesar, and he shared with folks there about the great news of Jesus, his love, his mercy, his resurrecting power. Except that these folks who were hearing it were not Jewish either. They were a cohort of Roman soldiers. And suddenly as he was sharing this, they began to praise God similarly to what had happened back when they saw and the fire and felt the wind or heard the wind. And suddenly they burst out in the praise of God. And Peter thought within himself, this is going to be a problem, this is going to create a controversy, but God's given them the Spirit, why should I deny them the waters of baptism? And so he took these soldiers, men all, uncircumcised, not Jewish by any stretch, baptized them in the name of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is. They hadn't crossed the Rubicon of that surgery. Now, they had been listening and studying the teachings of Moses. They just didn't go through the surgery, painful as it was. But as Peter was preaching, they had this kumbaya moment, and he welcomed them into the faith. Some rejoiced about that news, but then controversy broke out, as he expected. What are we doing with these uncircumcised among us? As he was doing this on the coast of the Mediterranean in in the Palestinian-Israeli lands, that persecutor-turned-convert-turned-evangelist, Paul, was out up north, up 
up around the northern side of the Mediterranean, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to other Gentiles and doing much the same, baptizing women and men, girls and boys into this new faith, this new movement, without having going, putting the males through this surgery. And controversy broke out because of Paul and his partner Barnabas, just as it was broken out at because of Peter and his. And so sure enough, they bubbled up in complaints and arguments. Jews and Gentiles coming together, that was almost as insane as having a Syracuse fan preaching in the pulpit the day after Syracuse plays Virginia. (laughs) Not as insane as it would be if Syracuse had won. That would really be insane, but your team did me in. That's aside the point. (laughs) But there they were, these great leaders, unapologetically changing the price of admission into joining the kingdom of God. And for a Jew, for those Jewish believers that were the early Christians, this was unthinkable. That's like a fraternity or sorority allowing a person to be inducted without going through traditional rush or pledging or the hazing, which they all say doesn't really go on but does. Or like the military allowing new recruits to come in without going through basic training. Like UVA or VCU or University of Richmond accepting Syracuse transfers without making sure they know what they're doing. Peter was preaching to this group. They accepted, they believed, he baptized them. And so, yes, criticism arose. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem and the circumcision party criticized him saying, you, want, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And they even were arguing about welcoming. He just even had a meal with them and they were criticizing him for that. So back in a few chapters before the one you read, Peter goes through the whole story explaining to them what had happened. And then Paul and Barnabas, they do it, and people complain to them. And so they all come to Jerusalem to talk about it. It's traditionally called the Council of Jerusalem. We Presbyterians call it the First General Assembly. They fought. They argued. They yelled. They were good Presbyterians. And in this meeting that they had, they basically changed the book of order, the operations manual. They they changed the way that they did things, the way they had done it through all of their lives, first as Jews, but then as this new Christian community leaders, as apostles and leaders of others' kinds. And what had been black and white rules now were admitting shades of gray. Oh, still lifting up the good principles they'd known, but allowing some discretion, some adaptation. Creating this, recreating this new fledgling body of Christ to be able to be in the larger worlds in a different way than they'd been before. 
know, it's funny. It's hard to imagine how that small group fighting together and wrestling together about the standards could grow into something of a a billion to two billion people worldwide. But one thing's for sure is that over those two millennia that have transpired, a lot of rules have been adjusted. A lot of ritual forms have been recreated and reinvented. Some theological formulas have been reformulated. Some behavioral standards have been adjusted, adapted, even sometimes transformed. Oh, we still insist that we should follow the God who has revealed God's self in the Holy Scriptures that itself also particularly reveals to us this one, Jesus, the Christ. We're sincere about that. But we've also often discovered that what we thought to be what was God's will and word really was more our own prejudices, habit forms that we'd inherited and incorporated and made our own that really at closer scrutiny, closer study, turned out to be not really what God was telling us in Scripture. Some things we thought were definitive and clear in the Bible actually have needed to be renegotiated, approximated, adapted, so that we could really be true to God's will in the world. We've discovered along the way that some of those commandments, those aphorisms, those dictums that we've made and built our lives around is what we must do at all times and all places um, were really not quite accurate or not quite true. Oh, some things we know to be true. God is. I am that I am, says God when revealed and speaking to Moses, that God is one God and three persons. We haven't wavered from that. That Christ's mission as the Son of God incarnated, died for the sins of the world, resurrected victorious, and ascended to heaven, that Jesus came in all of that to reconcile us to God, that we can know God by His mediating work. And that His his gift of salvation is truly given freely because he's purchased it he's paid the price for it oh that we know to be sound and sure and clear but some of those other things that we've been practicing and believing and holding to be sure and non-negotiable maybe we're still at a place where some of the things we still think are clear and non-negotiable maybe are a little more vague and subject to reconsideration. I come from the part of the Christian tradition that tends to lift up the clarity, the clear things. Stand sure, stand clear, stand confident. We know what we know. We got all the answers. Jesus is the answer sometimes cover our ears when people ask too many questions. But I have to acknowledge that I've been around a lot of folks who ask good questions. 
and they've pressed me to be more open to reconsideration and to adjustment and admit that maybe some of the things I've held to be sure have been just plain wrong. Now, if you think I've lost my mind, you just might be right. But I want to suggest to you this story from the Council of Jerusalem, right in the middle of this book of Acts, brings us some good news. It names out loud the fact that life doesn't come in a neat, simple package. That life doesn't just follow pre-prescribed checklists. That all of our decisions are just simple and obvious. Now that may not sound initially as good news because we do like to have things clear, things nailed down, things defined. That We who have or will be raising children, we want to be able to kind of give them a checklist of what to do. And we frankly like to have people tell us what to do sometimes, like which major to choose or how to discipline our children, how to manage our money or balance our work schedule, how to learn to become more assertive or maybe how to tame our temper, how to best make a career change or how to better get along with the boss right now decide when to turn to the left and when to turn to the right. We like to have those decisions be simplified for us just as long as they bring a manufacturer's guarantee for success in the end. But lacking that guarantee, knowing that bad things do happen to good people, good, sincere, intentional, faithful, responsible people, you and I both would really rather have multiple choices from which to choose. We'd like to be able to be free to consider the different possibilities and to wrestle through them to come up with a better choice than the worst choice. So how? How do we do that in the light of what it is they did? Well, I'll say what not to do, and that's not to expect simple answers. It's a complicated world, complicated life. It calls for complicated understandings and, and answers. But we can do what they did. That is to seek, first of all, the counsel of one another, to talk together. They journeyed to Jerusalem. And this was a large, pretty small group of people that were there, but some of them were really rigid in their thinking. They were from the sect of the Pharisees. They were really hardliners about what's right and wrong. Others were more visionary, kind of thinking outside the box. Peter was one of those. And so are Paul and Barnabas. And there are some that are just kind of organizational type leaders. James was the one who took charge that way. We do things like that in the Presbyterian Church. We gather in committees and in Bible studies. We gather in prayer groups and in session meetings and in deacons meetings to be able to consider together what it is we're doing and might do and should do. We wrestle the big questions. And we do gravitate into kind of mindsets, the, the rigid ones, the, the more inventive ones, the right brain, the left brain, uh, the mathematical, the more artsy. And we talk together. With them, we also search the scriptures. They looked back to what the Bible says. 
What, is, what did the Bible say? They had only the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, to use. But James reflects back to the story of David and how he built a tent. And, and, and James, he saw that to be a, a picture of this place that could welcome all kinds of peoples together, not just us, but them that haven't been a part of us before. He asked, what are the bigger principles at stake? Going all the back to the days of Abraham when God said you'll be a blessing to all of the nations. That it's not just for us, it's, just, it's for them as well. And ultimately, it was Paul who said, it's not just the letter that we follow of the law that is, but the spirit of the law. So we get together and talk, and we search the scriptures, and ask in those scriptures, what are the bigger pictures at stake, not just the specifics here at hand? And then with them, we draw a tentative conclusion and go out. They said there are four, four rules we'll stick with, and they sent them out and wrote letters to the church and say, follow these four rules. Later on, Paul takes one of them and says, don't worry about that one. <laughs> Believe it or not, he actually changes on that one. The one about eating food offered to idols. He later on says, if they don't tell you where they got the meat, don't ask. <laughs> it wasn't Bill Clinton who first came up with don't ask, don't tell. I'm not making this up, folks. It's there. It's in your book. For one thing, they knew that the big mission is to take the gospel and the good news of Jesus to the world. And that meant letting people in that aren't like us. In fact, welcoming, urging them in, knowing that they would change us as much as the gospel would change them. And thanks be to God, if only for that. At the risk of stringing a bunch of unrelated cliches, it makes me nervous to try to herd the cats of this biblical story and let out the bag. It's a crazy idea to try to ride the horses that have been let out of the barn. It's impossible to close Pandora's box and forget about trying to wrap a leash around a monster. But I think you know as well as I do that life is complicated. The simplistic answers we in American Christianity have been handing down are not working anymore. A whole generation of young adults is crying out to find some kind of faith that rings true, that is authentic, that is going to work in the world as they know it. And when they hear simple and simplistic answers to their complicated questions, they'll just say, I'll have none of it, and walk away. The demographers are telling us that's what they're doing. And there's no brand of American Christianity that's winning them over right now. But I think you could be that. I believe we could be that. In our brand of Christianity, we've had a lot of room for questions and for complexities and nuance and ambiguity while still lifting up the light of God God's self. Brothers and sisters, we heard that, that God is writing those laws in our hearts and inscribing them in our minds. God is, in, take, is rewriting the laws, not changing them per se, but writing them on a new surface, the tablets of our heart. 
That is what the prophet Jeremiah promised. That's what the prophet Ezekiel promised. That's what the prophet Joel promised. That's what the apostles declared as happening in their very day and this very day. And yes, that very thing has been happening in your life. Working in you. Working in us. To grant us an understanding of God's will and an empowerment to live into that will. So that we can also invite others to do so with us. And so, while we dare live in the dangers and the complexities and the ambiguities of this world into which God has sent us, has called us to be a part of this body of Christ, so let us live into the reality that that word is being written in us, that we may share it and see what great things God will do tomorrow and thereafter. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let us pray. I like it better when I'm really simple, God. I so appreciate it that you haven't stuck to my preference for simplicity, but have called for us to be a people whose place with you in this world is one to be as rich and complex as it was in Jesus' own incarnation. And so God, be more fully formed in our lives. May the Jesus we read of be a Jesus that others see in us and help us at the same time to see the Jesus in others. That we can love them as you love us. In Jesus' own name we pray. Amen.